Section twenty one of Celebrated Travels and Travellers, Volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in December two thousand fourteen. Celebrated Travels and Travellers, Volume three. The Great Explorers and Travellers of the Nineteenth Century by Jules Verne. Second Part, Chapter One. Voyages Round the World and Polar Expeditions. Two. On the tenth May, eighteen o five, Kotzenstern landed at Yezo and was surprised to find the season but little advanced. The trees were not yet in leaf, the snow still lay thick here and there, and the explorer had supposed that it was only at Archangel that the temperature would be so severe at this time of year. This phenomenon was to be explained later, when more was known as to the direction taken by the polar current, which, issuing from Bering Strait, washes the shores of Kamchatka, the Kuril Islands, and Yezo. During his short stay here and at Sakhalin, Kruzenstern was able to make some observations on the Ainos, a race which probably occupied the whole of Yezo before the advent of the Japanese, from whom, at least from those who have been influenced by intercourse with China, they differ entirely. Their figure, says Kruzenstern, dress, appearance, and their language prove that they are the same people as those of Sakhalin, and the captain of the Castricum, when he missed the Straits of La Perouse, might imagine, as well in Aniva as in Alkis, that he was but in one island. The Ainos are rather below the middle stature, being at the most five feet two or four inches high, of a dark, nearly black complexion, with a thick bushy beard, black rough hair, hanging straight down, and, excepting in the beard, they have the appearance of the Kamchadales, only that their countenance is much more regular. The women are sufficiently ugly, their colour, which is equally dark, their coal-black hair combed over their faces, blue-painted lips and tattooed hands, added to no remarkable cleanliness in their clothing, do not give them any great pretensions to loveliness however i must do them the justice to say that they are modest in the highest degree and in this point form the completest contrast with the women of nukahiva and of otaheite the characteristic quality of an aino is goodness of heart which is expressed in the strongest manner in his countenance and so far as we were able to observe their actions they fully answered this expression the dress of the Ainos consists chiefly of the skins of tame dogs and seals, but I have seen some in a very different attire, which resembles the Pakis of the Kamchadales, and is, properly speaking, a white shirt worn over their other clothes. In Aniwa Bay they were all clad in furs, their boots were made of seal skins, and in these likewise the women were invariably clothed. After passing through the Straits of La Perouse, Kruzenstern cast anchor in Aniva Bay, off the island of Sakhalin. Here fish was then so plentiful that two Japanese firms alone employed four hundred Ainos to catch and dry it. It is never taken in nets, but buckets are used at ebb tide. 
after having surveyed patience gulf which had only been partially examined by the dutchman fries and at the bottom of which flows a stream now named the neva Kruzenstern broke off his examination of Sakhalin to determine the position of the Curiel Islands, never yet accurately laid down, and on the 5th June 1805 he returned to Petropaulovsky, where he put on shore the ambassador and his suit. In July, after crossing Nadieda Street between Matona and Rahona, two of the Curiel Islands, Kruzenstern surveyed the eastern coast of Sakhalin, in the neighborhood of Cape Patience, which presented a very picturesque appearance, with the hills clothed with grass and stunted trees, and the shores with bushes. The scenery of the interior, however, was somewhat monotonous, with its unbroken line of lofty mountains. The navigator skirted along the whole of this deserted and harbourless coast to Capes Maria and Elizabeth, between which is a deep bay, with a little village of thirty-seven houses nestling at the end, the only one the Russians had seen since they left Providence Bay. It was not inhabited by Ainos, but by Tartars, of which very decided proof was obtained a few days later. Kruzenstern next entered the channel separating Sakhalin from Tartary, but he was hardly six miles from the middle of the passage when his soundings gave six fathoms only. It was useless to hope to penetrate further. Orders were given to bout ship, whilst the boat was sent to trace the coastline on either side and to explore the middle of the strait until the soundings should give three fathoms only. A very strong current had to be contended with, rendering this row very difficult, and this current was rightly supposed to be due to the river Amur, the mouth of which was not far distant. The advice given to Kruzenstern by the governor of Kamchatka not to approach the coast of Chinese Tartary, lest the jealous suspicions of the celestial government should be aroused, prevented the explorer from further prosecuting the work of surveying, and once more passing the Kuril group, the Nadieda returned to Petropaulovsky. The commander availed himself of his stay in this port to make some necessary repairs in his vessel, and to confirm the statements of Captain Clerk, who had succeeded Cook in the command of his last expedition, and those of Delisle de la Croyère, the French astronomer who had been Bering's companion in 1741. During this last sojourn at Petropaulovsky, Kruzenstern received an autograph letter from the Emperor of Russia, enclosing the Order of St. Anne as a proof of His Majesty's satisfaction with the work done. On the 4th October 1805, the Nadieda set sail for Europe, exploring en route the latitudes in which, according to the maps of the day, were situated the islands of Rica de Plata, Guadalupas, Malabrigos, San Sebastián de Lobos, and San Juan. Kruzenstern next identified the Farellan Islands of Anson's map, now known as St. Alexander, St. Augustine, and Volcanoes, and situated south of the Bonin-Sima group. Then, crossing the Formosa Channel, he arrived at Macau on the 21st November. He was a good deal surprised not to find the Neva there, as he had given instructions for it to bring a cargo of furs, the price of which he proposed expending on Chinese merchandise. He decided to wait for the arrival of the Neva. Macau seemed to him to be falling rapidly into decay. 
Many fine buildings, he says, are ranged in large squares, surrounded by courtyards and gardens, but most of them uninhabited, the number of Portuguese residents there having greatly decreased. The chief private houses belong to the members of the Dutch and English factories. Twelve or fifteen thousand is said to be the number of the inhabitants of Macau, most of whom, however, are Chinese, who have so completely taken possession of the town that it is rare to meet any European in the streets, with the exception of priests and nuns. One of the inhabitants said to me, We have more priests here than soldiers, a piece of raillery that was literally true, the numbers of soldiers amounting only to 150, not one of whom is a European, the whole being mulattoes of Macau and Goa. Even the officers are not all Europeans. With so small a garrison it is difficult to defend four large fortresses, and the natural insolence of the Chinese finds a sufficient motive in the weakness of the military to heap insult upon insult. Just as the Nadiyeda was about to weigh anchor, the Neva at last appeared. It was now the 3rd November, and Kotzenstern went up the coast in the newly arrived vessel as far as Wampoa, where he sold to advantage his cargo of furs, after many prolonged discussions which his firm but conciliating attitude, together with the intervention of English merchants, brought to a successful issue. On the ninth November, the two vessels once more together weighed anchor and resumed their voyage by way of the Sunda Isles. Beyond Christmas Island they were again separated in cloudy weather, and did not meet until the end of the trip. On the 4th of May, the Nadiyeda cast anchor in St. Helena Bay, sixty days' voyage from the Sunda Islands, and seventy-nine from Macau. "'I know of no better place,' says Kruzenstern, to get supplies after a long voyage than St. Helena. The road is perfectly safe, and at all times more convenient than Table Bay or Simon's Bay at the Cape. The entrance, with the precaution of first getting near the land, is perfectly easy, and on quitting the island nothing more is necessary than to weigh anchor and stand out to sea. Every kind of provision may be obtained here, particularly the best kinds of garden stuffs, and in two or three days a ship may be provided with everything. On the 21st April, Kruzenstern passed between the Shetland and Orkney Islands, in order to avoid the English Channel, where he might have met some French pirates, and after a good voyage he arrived at Kronstadt on the 7th August, 1806. Without taking first rank, like the expedition of Cook or that of La Perouse, Kotzenstern's trip was not without interest. We owe no great discovery to the Russian explorer, but he verified and rectified the work of his predecessors. This was in fact what most of the navigators of the nineteenth century had to do, the progress of science enabling them to complete what had been begun by others. Kotzenstern had taken with him in his voyage round the world the son of the well-known dramatic author Kotzebue, the young Otto Kotzebue, who was then a cadet, soon gained his promotion, and he was a naval lieutenant when, in 1815, the command was given to him of the Rurik, a new brig with two guns, and a crew of no more than twenty-seven men, equipped at the expense of Count Romantsov. His task was to explore the less-known parts of Oceania, and to cut a passage for his vessel across the frozen ocean. 
Kotzebue left the port of Kronstadt on the 15th July, 1815, put in first at Copenhagen and Plymouth, and after a very trying trip doubled Cape Horn and entered the Pacific Ocean on the 22nd January, 1816. After a halt at Talcahuano on the coast of Chile, he resumed his voyage, sighted the desert island of Salas of Gomez on the 26th March, and steered towards Easter Island, where he hoped to meet with the same friendly reception as Cook and Perouse had done before him. The Russians had, however, hardly disembarked before they were surrounded by a crowd eager to offer them fruit and roots, by whom they were so shamelessly robbed that they were compelled to use their arms in self-defense, and to re-embark as quickly as possible to avoid the shower of stones flung at them by the natives. The only observation they had time to make during this short visit was the overthrow of the numerous huge stone statues described, measured, and drawn by Cook and La Perouse. On the 16th April, the Russian captain arrived at the dog island of Shoten, which he called Doubtful Island, to mark the difference in his estimate of its position and that attributed to it by earlier navigators. Kotzebue gives it southern latitude 44 degrees 50 minutes and western longitude 138 degrees 47 minutes. During the ensuing days were discovered the desert island of Romantsov, so named in honor of the promoter of the expedition, Spiridov Island, with a lagoon in the center, the island Ura of the Pomautu group, the Fliegen chain of islets, and the no less extended group of the Kruzenstern Islands. On the 28th April, the Rurik was near the supposed site of Baumann's Islands, but not a sign of them could be seen, and it appeared probable that the group had in fact been one of those already visited. As soon as he was safely out of the dangerous Pomanto archipelago, Kotzebue steered towards the group of islands sighted in 1788 by Sever, who, without touching at them, gave them the name of Penrin. The Russian explorer determined the position of the central group of islands as southern latitude 9 degrees 1 minute 35 seconds and western longitude 157 degrees 44 minutes 32 seconds, characterizing them as very low, like those of the Pomanto group, but inhabited for all that. At the sight of the vessel a considerable fleet of canoes put off from the shore, and the natives, palm branches in their hands, advanced with the rhythmic sound of the paddles serving as a kind of solemn and melancholy accompaniment to numerous singers. To guard against surprise, Kotzebue made all the canoes draw up on one side of the vessel, and bartering was done with a rope as the means of communication. The natives had nothing to trade with but bits of iron and fish-hooks made of mother-of-pearl. They were well-made and martial-looking, but wore no clothes beyond a kind of apron. At first only noisy and very lively, the natives soon became threatening. They thieved openly and answered remonstrances with undisguised taunts. Brandishing their spears above their heads, they seemed to be urging each other on to an attack. When Kotzebue felt that the moment had come to put an end to these hostile demonstrations, he had one gun fired. 
in the twinkling of an eye the canoes were empty their terrified crews unpremeditatingly flinging themselves into the water with one accord presently the heads of the divers reappeared and a little calmed down by the warning received the natives returned to their canoes and their bartering nails and pieces of iron were much sought after by these people whom kotzebue likens to the natives of nukahiva they do not exactly tattoo themselves but cover their bodies with large scars a curious fashion not before noticed amongst the islanders of oceania prevails amongst them most of them wear the nails very long and those of the chief men in the canoes extended three inches beyond the end of the finger thirty-six boats manned by three hundred sixty men now surrounded the vessel and kotzebue judging that with his feeble resources and the small crew of the rurik any attempt to land would be impudent set sail again without being able to collect any more information on these wild and warlike islanders continuing his voyage towards kamchatka the navigator sighted on the twenty first of may two groups of islands connected by a chain of coral reefs he named them kutusov and suwarov determined their position and made up his mind to come back and examine them again the natives in fleet canoes approached the rurik but in spite of the pressing invitations of the russian would not trust themselves on board they gazed at the vessel in astonishment talked to each other with a vivacity which showed their intelligence and flung on deck the fruit of the pandanus tree and coconuts their lank black hair with flowers fastened in it here and there the ornaments hung round their necks their clothing of two curiously woven coloured mats tied to the waist and reaching below the knee but above all their frank and friendly countenances distinguished the natives of the martial archipelago from those of penrin on the nineteenth june the rurik put in at new archangel and for twenty-eight days her crew were occupied in repairing her on the fifteenth july kotzebue set sail again and five days later disembarked on bering island the southern promontory of which he laid down in northern latitude fifty-five degrees seventeen minutes eighteen seconds and western longitude hundred ninety-four degrees six minutes thirty-seven seconds the natives kotzebue met with on this island like those of the north american coast wore clothes made of seal-skin and the intestines of the walrus the lances used by them were pointed with the teeth of these amphibious animals their food consisted of the flesh of whales and seals which they store in deep cellars dug in the earth their boats were made of leather and they had sledges drawn by dogs their mode of salutation is strange enough they first rub each other's noses and then pass their hands over their own stomachs as if rejoicing over the swallowing of some tidbit lastly when they want to be very friendly indeed they spit in their own palms and rub their friends faces with the spittle the captain still keeping his northerly course along the american coast discovered chichmaref bay sarichif island and lastly an extensive gulf the existence of which was not previously known at the end of this gulf kotzebue hoped to find a channel through which he could reach the arctic ocean but he was disappointed 
he gave his own name to the gulf and that of Kutzenstern to the cape at the entrance. Driven back by bad weather, the Rurik reached Unalashka on the 6th of September, halted for a few days at San Francisco, and reached the Sandwich Islands, where some important surveys were made and some very curious information collected. On leaving the Sandwich Islands, Kotzebue steered for Suvarov and Kutusov Islands, which he had discovered a few months before. On the 1st January 1817, he sighted Miyadi Island, to which he gave the name of New Year's Island. Four days later, he discovered a chain of little low wooded islands set in a framework of reefs, through which the vessel could scarcely make its way. Just at first the natives ran away at the sight of Lieutenant Shishmarov, but they soon came back with branches in their hands, shouting out the word, Aidara, friend. The officer repeated this word and gave them a few nails in return, for which the Russians received the collars and flowers worn as neck ornaments by the natives. This exchange of courtesies emboldened the rest of the islanders to appear, and throughout the stay of the Russians in this archipelago these friendly demonstrations and enthusiastic but guarded greetings were continued. One native, Rarik by name, was particularly cordial to the Russians, whom he informed that the name of his island and of the chain of islets and atolls connected with it was Otia. In acknowledgment of the cordial reception of the natives, Kotzebue left with them a cock and hen, and planted in a garden laid out under his orders a quantity of seeds, in the hope that they would thrive, but in this he did not make allowance for the number of rats which swarmed upon these islands and wrought havoc in his plantations. On the 6th February, after ascertaining from what he was told by a chief named Langdiak that these sparingly populated islands were of recent formation, Kotzebue put to sea again, having first christened the archipelago Romantsov. The next day a group of islets, on which only three inhabitants were found, had its name of Eregup changed to that of Chichakov, and then an enthusiastic reception was given to Kotzebue on the Kaven Islands by the Tamon, or chief. Every native here fetted the newcomers, some by their silence, like the queen forbidden by etiquette to answer the speeches made to her, some by their dances, cries and songs, in which the name of Totabu, Kotzebue, was constantly repeated. The chief himself came to fetch Kotzebue in a canoe, and carried him on his shoulders through the breakers to the beach. In the oar group the navigator noticed amongst the crowd of natives who climbed on to the vessel, two natives whose faces and tattooing seemed to mark them as of alien race. One of them, Kadu by name, especially pleased the commander, who gave him some bits of iron, and Kotzebue was surprised that he did not receive them with the same pleasure as his companions. This was explained the same evening. When all the natives were leaving the vessel, Kadu earnestly begged to be allowed to remain on the Rurik, and never again to leave it. The commander only yielded to his wishes after a great deal of persuasion. Kadu, says Kotzebue, had scarcely obtained permission, when he turned quickly to his comrades who were waiting for him, declared to them his intention of remaining on board the ship, and distributed his iron among the chief. 
the astonishment in the boats was beyond description they tried in vain to shake his resolution he was immovable at last his friend edok came back spoke long and seriously to him and when he found that his persuasion was of no avail he attempted to drag him by force but kadu now used the right of the strongest he pushed his friend from him and the boats sailed off his resolution being inexplicable to me i conceived the notion that he perhaps intended to steal during the night and privately to leave the ship and therefore had the night watch doubled and his bed made up close to mine on the deck where i slept on account of the heat kadu felt greatly honoured to sleep close to the tamon of the ship born at ulle one of the caroline islands more than three hundred miles from the group where he was now living kadu with edok and two other fellow-countrymen had been overtaken when fishing by a violent storm for eight months the poor fellows were at the mercy of the winds and currents on a sea now smooth now rough they had never throughout this time been without fish but they had suffered the cruellest tortures from thirst when their stock of rain-water which they had used very sparingly was exhausted there was nothing left to them to do but to fling themselves into the sea and try to obtain at the bottom of the ocean some water less impregnated with salt which they brought to the surface in coconut shells pierced with a small opening when they reached the ore islands even the sight of land and the immediate prospect of safety did not rouse them from the state of prostration into which they had sunk the sight of the iron instruments in the canoe of the strangers led the people of ore to decide on their massacre for the sake of their treasures but the tamon tigidien by name took them under his protection End of section 21